Welcome to Find Your Edge by Reflection, where we discuss the real-life applications of neurofitness and how they'll shape our future. James Kent, and today we are talking about the science of sports vision and how the latest neurological understanding and training can improve athletic performance. Joining us is Dr. Greg Applebaum. Greg is an associate professor in the Duke University School of Medicine, where he heads the Human Performance Optimization Lab and directs the Brain Stimulation Research Center. Welcome, Greg, and thanks for being here today to talk about this fascinating subject. My pleasure. Greg, uh, sports vision training has been around for a while, and obviously athletes are turning to it as a way to gain a competitive edge. How's the practice evolved over the past few years? Well, it's evolved because of a combination of two things, a better understanding of how the visual system works and uh, new technologies that allow us to access information and train in natural contexts uh, much more easily. Could you talk about some of the research you and your team have been doing specifically? Yeah, well, we're specifically interested in how we can optimize human performance using neuroscience-based tools. This spans from vision instruments, uh, things that uh, go from low level, things that you might think of uh, as optometrists using, up to high level tools and technology uh, that span all the way up to virtual reality and augmented reality. And we also use brain stimulation um, as a way of modulating the brain to improve uh, learning and neuroplasticity. So in your research, you will bring in athletes, test subjects, and put them through emotions? Yeah. Well, we have a, a combination of both laboratory-based research and uh, real-world research. So in some times, we are bringing people into the lab and we're doing experiments here uh, in the laboratory that are under very carefully controlled situations. And other times, we're out in the field. Uh, we're working with athletes on their own turf. As I mentioned, a lot of these new tools, particularly these digital tools, allow us to collect data in contexts that you wouldn't think of as research contexts. They're real context where athletes might be practicing, training, or even competing. So does this research, this type of training involve like pretty much any type of athletic sport, or are there certain ones that you focus on more than others? Well, uh, vision is important in most sports, uh, but it's not uniformly important. So you can think of certain sports and even certain positions within certain sports as uh, relying more on vision. And so we tend to target those sports. So for example, uh, kind of the canonical example would be a baseball or a softball batter uh, needing to spot a pitch and hit, hit the ball. Um, so that's a highly visual sport, but same ideas are at play in everything from volleyball to football to all different types of interceptive sports where the goals are to intercept a moving object, whether it's a ball, or an opponent, but it's also true in dynamic sports um, where you're trying to track opponents and teammates and you have to pay attention to a lot of different things that are moving on around you all at the same time. Getting down to the specifics, give me an example of a particular part of the training that an athlete would learn through these methods that then they can go and apply and actually uh, improve performance. 
uh, we think of this in a kind of a heuristic of visual hardware and visual software. And so on the hardware side, we're really talking about how the nervous system transduces light into a neural signal. Um, and that has to do with things like acuity and contrast sensitivity and depth perception, uh, all of which uh, can be trained. Uh, it's harder. These are kind of more low-level visual properties. Of course, we can correct them through optometric corrections, uh, LASIK, contact lenses, glasses, etc. And then software would be things like uh, anticipation, uh, useful field of view, tracking multiple objects. So those are the different types of training um, or abilities that we might be targeting. And then in terms of the specifics of what we might do, uh, well, we might have somebody train on depth perception drills. So they may be trying to discern very subtle differences in depth cues. And you could practice this over time and you can improve your depth resolution. Or we might have people practice anticipatory timing. So uh, fast moving objects that you have to anticipate where they're going and you could train these abilities so that you get more and more precise to be able to anticipate. Same idea with useful field of view and multiple object tracking. You could train these kind of software abilities, these cognitive abilities to be able to see more of the field, to be able to track more objects more quickly and more accurately. Um, and we do all of these. Do you have athletes and say teams reaching out directly to you or are you doing the reaching out trying to get subjects? Uh, really both. Um, there's kind of a, a cycle that goes on. I think it's first worth saying that a lot of this research is funded by the Department of Defense. They're very interested in how you can train soldiers to see better and react better. Um, and so they are more than happy with this model of a athlete as a proxy for a soldier for a number of reasons. Uh, there's a lot of demand. Um, there's kind of time-sensitive critical decision-making. Uh, but in the sports domain, it's very easy to get data. Sports are all about data and scores and metrics. And so we have this really great situation where we can infer a lot from the data that happens naturalistically in sports. Uh, so uh, the Army funds it. We do research. Some of it is laboratory research. Um, some of it is field-based research. What tends to happen is we'll publish a paper, and then all of a sudden practitioners out there, whether they're optometrists or sports scientists or coaches or trainers or general managers, they'll hear about it, and then they will contact us, and that engenders new um, research. Uh, so, for example, we had a paper published about a year ago um, showing that we could predict batting performance in professional baseball players from vision screenings that we did preseason. And when this came out, of course, all of a sudden, a, a bunch of major league teams descended upon us and said, oh, tell us more. And from that, we sparked new collaborations, which have led to new research projects. On that subject, I can imagine that this is an evolving science. And I'm sure that there's techniques that are used on athletes that probably need updating or they get outdated, or you may have people out there, practitioners that are touting, hey, we have the latest in sports vision science, and how does an athlete know that they're going to be getting the right training, or maybe, you know, they're, they're getting some snake oil? Yeah, so there's really been a seed change in the last 10 years. Uh, before 
about 10 years ago, everything was analog. So all of the training techniques would have been things that were physical objects that you would train with, um, beads and balls and charts that are near and far and things of that nature. And in the last couple of years, there's been a movement towards these digital tools and technologies. Uh, some of them would be tablet-based. Some of them would be devices that are able to present stimuli in ways that we couldn't do before. Uh, like we like to use this light rail, which is a long strip of LEDs, and you can set it up much like a pitch coming to a, a batter, and it zips down with these LEDs, and you have to hit a button or swing a bat over a proximity sensor when it gets to a certain point. And then you could layer on cognitive decision-making. So you could have the light turn from green to red if they're supposed to withhold their response or, or other types of kind of games. Um, another piece of equipment that we do a lot of research with are strobe glasses. Um, and so these are uh, eyewear that are, have liquid crystal lenses and a digital control, and they will alternate from opaque to transparent. And they can do this under different frequencies. And at really high frequencies, you get a lot of samples of vision uh, pretty quickly, so it's pretty easy. But as it slows down to slower and slower frequencies, more and more visual information is lost. And so the idea is, is that you train under these visual conditions that are harder than real natural vision during a sporting event. And so it's analogous to resistance training where an athlete might run at altitude to practice right. uh, under the harder conditions where they have thin air and then compete at sea level. And so the strobe training is analogous to training with thin vision. And then when you take the strobe glasses off, the idea is you reap the benefit of having trained under the harder conditions, projected trajectories with less visual information or attended better. And we have a number of studies, both from our group and from other groups out there, showing that there are benefits of this. So this type of training, is this an ongoing training that the athlete needs to perform or is this something that they go through a certain period of this training and then that's good? I can imagine it, it's sort of like with the runners, you have to continue that type of training. Yeah, so that's a very open question at the moment. Um, is it enough to just practice it once and reap the benefits and then you don't have to do it again? Probably not. Um, is it the case that you have to do it before every game, before you go up to bat, uh, batter's box, and when you're getting ready? Probably not also. So there's probably something in the middle. There's probably some persistence and retention of the abilities that you uh, gain through the practice, but it's not a one-shot situation. So we're still very much in the throes of this research trying to figure out important questions like this. How do you see sports vision training playing a key role in athlete safety, especially in terms of hard contact sports? I myself have two sons who play hockey. And you know, while I see this type of training aiding their skill set as players on the ice, as a parent, I'm always concerned with them taking a hit that they didn't see coming. And I'm wondering how this could play a role in helping that. You can imagine that seeing the field better gives you an advantage of avoiding obstacles, collisions, and things of that nature. So uh, there has been some interesting research out there showing that people who have better visual capabilities are better able to avoid some types of collision. But of course, in many sports, the collision is not avoidable or it comes from behind you where you can't see anyhow. So I think there's some benefit um, not being able to see the field better, but it's not 
a cure-all for preventing all injuries. Um, another interesting domain is in planting errors when you, you might plant your foot wrong, which causes a lot of lower extremity injuries where you might blow out your ACL or whatnot. And so in that case, you could imagine being able to see the ground better is advantageous. It's also the case that this plays into the rehabilitation space. Uh, so mm. what we've learned over time is that after athletes have lower extremity injuries, they tend to downweight their proprioception, their, their sense of body positioning, um, and they upweight their visual information, which makes sense because the proprioceptive information coming in isn't as good because there's been an injury. There's a movement now to use this um, to embed vision training in the rehabilitation of lower extremity injuries. And so that is another place where uh, vision training is becoming beneficial. And then I think probably the last thing to say in this space is following traumatic brain injury, there's really kind of three domains of persistent symptoms. One of them is memory, one of them is balance, and one of them is vision. So if you fall into the space of having vision problems following a head injury, this is again a space where we could use vision training tools in the rehabilitation process. Obviously, you're doing a lot of the research and then practitioners are taking that research and, and the techniques. So say you're an individual athlete or you're a team and you're looking to get that training. How do you go about that to get the right training? Where do you, where do you start the search? This is an interesting question. And uh, you would think that optometry would have kind of been leading the charge in this space. And they've tried over the years um, where you would think, you know, optometric care and vision correction. And there are some optometrists that have succeeded wildly uh, being able to bring a vision care to athletes, but it also doesn't really fit the business model of an optometrist in many cases. Um, so there are some gaps in, in between optometry and sports that we're trying to fill right now, trying to make this more accessible for optometrists to work with athletes in, in natural naturalistic contexts that don't involve bringing the athlete into an optometry office. So as I mentioned before, there's a lot of these new tools that are, are naturalistic and they're digital and they can be deployed much more easily. Um, and so you know, once you've already established a, a vision screening with an optometrist and gotten the correction that you need, then it becomes much more easy to bring these tools to the athletes and the barrier to entry has gone down and down and down over time. So a lot of the tools like uh, multiple object tracking or some of these anticipatory timing drills or um, some of these perceptual cognitive training exercises where you might have video footage or still footage or, or even virtual reality that allows you to train kind of in the context of the sport that you are performing are now things that you could do at home or our trainers or coaches now have access to these tools that they could use directly with their athletes. So the, the gap is being filled partly by the fact that these tools are just much more accessible now. Uh, how, how is it in terms of cost? Teams may be able to afford training to have all their athletes performing at the highest level, but what if you're an individual who is looking to gain that uh, competitive edge, you recognize that this could be an important tool, but is it out of reach cost-wise for most people? 
So this is a, a very important thing to think about in this space. I, I talk about it in terms of opportunity costs, which covers not just the monetary costs, but the cost in terms of what are you giving up in order to get the benefit of vision training. Um, so of course, some of it is monetary, but a lot of it is also time. And then so in many cases, the time is limited. The coaches or trainers only have so much time to work with their athletes, so they may do vision training at the expense of some other drills or exercise. In terms of the monetary cost, it's gone down substantially. Um, many of these tools, devices are in the hundreds of dollars or less. Things like the strobe glasses are 200-ish dollars or less, which is you know, on par with other types of training uh, tools that athletes might go out and buy. Many of the digital platforms where you're either doing perceptual training or virtual training, uh, those are bought on a subscription basis, which can be you know, a few dollars a month. Other pieces of equipment can be more expensive. And of course, then the cost of working with a specialist, if you are bringing in a specialist, can be more expensive. So the monetary cost can be pretty variable from, from quite cheap to much more expensive. In terms of the time, the, the real advantage here is that in many cases, these tools and techniques can be layered on top of things that athletes might already be doing. Sure. So you can take decision-making drills or anticipatory timing drills and have athletes do this while they're practicing their sport. So we, what we'll oftentimes do in our, our research is make it part of their strength and conditioning drills. So for example, put the strobe glasses on and have them do that while they're doing strength and conditioning drills or set up a station where they're doing anticipatory timing in between when they're taking their batting practice. So take a couple swings of batting practice, step off, do the digital uh, light rail, then get back on uh, the pitching machine. And so those opportunity costs have gone down and down and down over time. However, um, some of the approaches, particularly as you get lower and lower in this kind of visual hierarchy to being in the space where you're trying to train acuity and contrast sensitivity and depth perception, those things just take a lot more time to create the plasticity. You know, it becomes easier and easier, but some of the things that we might want to be training actually just take some amount of time to uh, accomplish. Greg, are there any other technologies besides the ones that you mentioned uh, that we should discuss in terms of sports vision training? Yes. Um, I think one of the tools that is used most productively is uh, light boards. Uh, so basically touch sensitive screens uh, that are set up in ways that present visual stimuli and then ask for responses that are distributed all across the board. So uh, there's different different technologies, different specific companies making these. But one of the cool things that you could do is you can layer cognitive demands on top of it. So you could present stimuli and have people respond or inhibit responses or present stimuli and take them away and make people remember where those uh, stimuli were. So you could layer on memory, you could layer on attention, you could layer on response inhibition. And more and more now, these are deployable. So they're portable. Um, in some cases, they can be set up as disks that can be situated not just on one board, but all across a gymnasium. So you can have people do this in their natural context. Uh, so these light boards 
are a really powerful tool now that are being used more and more, um, and they're very exciting. Is there any examples that you have of like a particular success story from an athlete who's benefited from some of the research that you're doing? I would say there's kind of two domains of success stories. Uh, one of them is in the scouting space, um, and there's some really famous examples of athletes um, who are picked not because of their physical prowess, but because of their mental and visual prowess. Uh, Mike Piazza, the catcher for a long time for the Mets, um, is a kind of a famous example. Um, and more and more, there's uh, there's examples of people. Uh, Mookie Betts is another one who is uh, kind of widely regarded to have been scouted based upon not just his physical abilities, but his kind of mental and perceptual abilities. The other family of success stories has been training programs um, where people have gone in and said, you know, this, I'm a good athlete or I'm an up and coming athlete and I need to make myself better. And I want to do these vision training programs. And there's a number of batters out there um, who historically have really sung the praises of the vision training that they did. Um, Tony Gwynn is one. There's, there's a number over the years. And another space that has kind of been interesting has been now that we have access to these assessments, we can actually find athletes who, who might ha- have really great abilities but have kind of specific deficits in their visual abilities and visual kind of processing skills that they've been compensating for. And so, um, you know, we've come across a few athletes over time that had really subpar depth perception abilities. And, you know, playing sports like basketball and baseball, you know, depth perception is hugely important. So what we've been able to do is work with these athletes to train their, their depth perception to bring it from a, a kind of a subpar level up to a good or even an excellent uh, level. And again, they've they've expressed to us and the data that we get from the post-training interventions has really suggested that this has worked. It's worked not just to improve their vision, to improve their depth perception, but to improve their, their game. What do you see as the next big leap in sports vision training? Maybe it's something you're working on now or where you see the technology going. Yeah, I think right now there's just so much forward movement on a lot of domains that I, I hate to pick one thing, <laughs> but if, if you forced me to, I would probably say uh, virtual and augmented reality, which you know it, it opens a lot of doors here because you can do virtual training of your sport. You know. Right. You can load different programs right in there. Right. But then you can also layer other things on top of the sport. So you might have a quarterback doing a decision making or they might have the, the headset on. They don't have to have all their teammates and opponents and coaches there. And they may start the program and watch a, a play unfold and have to make a decision in there. But then on top of that, you could layer in some other cognitive load, like mental rehearsing other things or keeping track of the clock or other things that aren't necessarily part of the sport, but then you add demands. And those can be visual demands or those can be cognitive demands. As the technology gets better and better and and where we're actually able to have fidelity in the sport, I don't think right now we're at a place where we can say – the virtual simulation of hitting a baseball is the same as hitting a baseball. Right. We're getting there. I think we're only a few years away to the point where the fidelity is very, very good. And we got to be really careful because if the training really works, but the fidelity isn't quite there, then we might be training the wrong thing. 
So we're getting there. And as long as we don't overextend what we're trying to train the person on, we're in a good position to reap the benefits. And I think in the very near future, those benefits may be basically seamless with the real sport. A lot of awesome things to look forward to. <laughs> you know, Greg, this was great. And I uh, appreciate you taking the time because, uh, you know, understanding how the brain works in sync with your hand-eye coordination when you're involved in a sport, whether it's an individual activity like running or tennis or team sport, such as baseball or basketball, that's, it's so important. Thank you. My pleasure. So I want to thank my guest today, Dr. Greg Applebaum from Duke University. And thank you for checking out this podcast. For more podcasts like this one, go to marketscale.com and visit our healthcare-specific vertical and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Spotify. I've been your host, James Kent. Thanks for listening.